Welcome to Diverse, the podcast for the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SWE's blog all together at altogether.swe.org. Are you taking full advantage of your SWE membership? Your membership grants you access to SWE Advanced Learning for career and life. Your membership unlocks free and discounted on-demand content 24 hours a day from around the world. The SWE Advanced Learning also has live learning. With multiple tracks, Advance offers something for every career and every stage of your career. SWE's many offerings feature subject matter experts from a wide variety of thought leaders in STEM and leadership. When you want to skill up, turn to Advance first. Access learning at advancelearning.swe.org. Hi, I'm Karen Hording, CEO of the Society of Women Engineers. Welcome to Diverse, a SWE podcast. Please remember to subscribe and follow us on social media. Visit swe.org for more details. I'm excited to be joined today by Janine Uzel, the Chief Executive Officer at NSBE, the National Society of Black Engineers. NSBE is the largest student-run organization in the United States focused on improving the advancement of Black engineers in academia and industry. Before joining NSBE, Janine was the COO of Wikipedia, where she drove process improvement and helped launch the Wikimedia Knowledge Equity Fund to address inequities in free knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us today, Janine. Thank you, Karen. It's so good to be here as a member of the SWE community. Really glad to be talking to you. And thanks for having me on your diversity line. Well, we appreciate you making the time. I know as we're recording this, you're about five weeks away from your national convention and it's Black History Month. So I know you're very busy. So again, we're grateful to have some time with you today. Yeah, you are right. We are T minus almost there for NSB 48, our national convention, which will be held in Anaheim, California. This is our first time, Karen, going hybrid. You know, we've all been doing some challenging things with COVID and learning to work around them. And so we're, I appreciate even the best practices we've gained from SWE to host this event. So yeah, you are correct. It's, it's a busy time, but this conversation is so necessary. And so when you mentioned to me that you wanted to have this and, and dig in a little around these kinds of conversations, I think it's great for your audience and for all of us to continue to keep them top of mind. So happy to take some time out so that we can do this. Great. Thank you so much. So Janine, our audience really ranges from young women first considering a career in engineering and technology through those who are very senior in in their careers. So maybe can we just start a little bit about early in your journey and what really first sparked your interest in engineering and how kind of you got down this path? So I love this story about my journey and it's always become a great story to tell. Now I, I will admit it comes with a little bit of emotion and sentiment because the reason I'm an engineer is because my older cousin, he's two years older than me. His name is Lysander Uzel, and he was studying mechanical engineering at NJIT, the New Jersey Institute of Technology. We grew up around the corner from each other, our fathers, our cousins, and grew up in the same town. And and so, uh, you know, he had said to me when I was a senior, who's probably entering his junior year, and said, look, you're good at math and science. You should study engineering 
And he's like, basically, you'll always have a job. So that's the main reason you should do this. My cousin passed away last year, almost 11 months ago, after being a mechanical engineer for many years and studying and then studying law. And it was, you know, he's young. So it's been a tough journey without him. But I, he's the reason I'm an engineer today. But I'll tell you that it's an amazing and a wonderful thing to have a man that will promote you as a woman, as a Black woman to study in the STEM space. Most of the time, that's not the case. It's usually women supporting women in this space. But he felt strongly in my core strengths. And then he also saw a gap that, you know, even back then in the 80s in the industry and thought that that's something I should study. Now, what I'll say here, and I had this conversation even with the where I went to high school. I, I won't mention it here, but I went to an all-girls boarding school. And um, I actually didn't get the same support initially. And this is a school that was very committed to advancing uh, women in this space. And I think that that was strictly because I was Black and, you know, looking to study in an engineering and technology space isn't something that people knew how to support. I don't think we still know how to support it. I don't think we know what to do with a, a young girl that says, I want to be an astronaut. We kind of say, oh, that's something. Instead of, you know, getting her in a program or encouraging her and, you know, buying her a spacesuit for Halloween or something. So I'm here because of my cousin. And I'm here because of a community of people that have supported me, including the Nesby family, um, to get to, to where I am. And I'm also here because of all the people that told me I couldn't get here. And I was fortunately able to, to pull myself beyond um, some of the, the sabotage of what it could mean to be a woman in STEM. Yeah. Well, first, I'm so sorry for the loss of your cousin. That's never easy, as, especially when it's someone who's been, it sounds like a champion for you for many, many years. But I think you touched on something really important around the importance of mentors and sponsors, and particularly to be that mentor or sponsor for someone who doesn't look like you, maybe, you know, someone you think you don't have a lot in common with. But can you maybe maybe talk about that through your journey of how you've either been that mentor or sponsor or received that and what we can all do to kind of think about stepping into those roles? I can. And before we get into like mentoring and sponsorship, which has certainly been pivotal and critical in my career, I will say that before we can even get to the space where we can find a mentor or someone that sponsors you along your journey, as a woman first, and then as a woman of color as well, because your audience is, is both, um, it's the, the bigger challenge is even having your eyes on someone that can help you get to a place where you even recognize that you have the ability to be in the room. So people talk a lot about getting in the room and finding your seat at the table. And for us, it's like, can I just see someone that looks like me in the room so that I can aspire to the room? So that's the first challenge. And then, yes, once you get there, mentoring, you know, Karen, I was well into my career. I was at GE. This was circa 2002. So I had a few years under my belt in my career before I had a Black female mentor. Paula Madison is still a mentor and friend to this day. She is not a, a woman in technology, but she was an officer at GE and, and became a mentor and a sponsor for my career. But I had already hit so many bumps in the road and was struggling so much in my career before I even had her. 
as someone to support me. And yes, she was a sponsor for me, but the bulk of my sponsors have all been, 99% of my sponsors have all been white men. Most of the time, that's what you find in the engineering and STEM space. And I'm very fortunate to have had those men that have spoken up for me and advanced my career. I think that we don't do that enough as women. Sometimes I don't think it's very intentional. I think that we are swamped, overwhelmed. We're not supported enough. And we are, you know, trying to keep our head above water. And it just makes it really difficult to remember to bring someone along. I know we want to do it. I just think that we are still struggling. And the things that we struggle with as women in the space of tech are just the simplicities um, within our career that we, we should not be dealing with on a regular basis. But those things, unfortunately, distract us and keep us from bringing people along. But it is a priority for me. And people have made that way for me as well. And, you know, it's just my hope to do it well, Karen. I'm not saying I nail it every time. I just want to do it well. Yeah. Well, I loved it. The first point you brought up, Janine, which is about kind of the you have to see it to be it. And I think one of the things both our organizations really strive to do is to showcase women in engineering, people of color working in engineering. And I think sometimes folks are sort of reluctant to step forward particularly as women, I think. And I remember a a male colleague of mine saying, it's not bragging if you've done it. And I I think we really need to sort of change that culture that, you know, it's okay to step forward. It's okay to talk about your accomplishments because you don't know who you might be inspiring by sharing that story. You know, that is, it's funny you say that because I have a friend, a male friend who was listening to me on another podcast and he his feedback was like, it was almost like you just didn't want to say the things that they had you on the podcast to talk about. He was like, you know, you've done the work, you've had the experience, but you kept holding back like you didn't want to say it. And I just, I said to him, I was like, well, I don't want to be arrogant. I just thought I'd drop some nuggets and move on. He's like, it's not arrogance. You're, you're helping other people. So I agree with you there. And, you know, there's always just the fact that you know, as women, we're raised to, you know, to be very different in how we present ourselves. And, and so maybe we take too much caution there. So let's challenge each other to not yes. be so cautious, because again, we don't know who we might be inspiring to be, you know, that next generation that's going to come behind us or people, you know, who are of our generation who are thinking about a career change. You know, we're in a space where we need everybody. So let's not hold back. Agreed. Can we talk a little bit about your time at GE? I know you spent a good part of your career working in healthcare technologies. So kind of what was that time like, especially at an organization I think of as so innovative? Karen, I've been so fortunate. I've just had a great career. I've had such a great career. And my time at GE, over 16 years that I was there and um, moved a lot, lived a lot of places. You know, I was an expat during my time at GE. and um, I couldn't have asked for a better unscripted experience because everyone always says to me, so how did that happen? And I'm like, you know, I was available for opportunity and then, you know, did great work and doors opened. So I started out in roles that I think are very important for women in technology to take. And those are P&L roles. I am convinced that when women don't understand budgeting and business operations, we will miss out on ways to lead organizations the way you and I are, whether that's an organization like SWE or a department of a company, 
you have to understand the business side. And many times we we will get consumed in the technology, which is great, you know, if that's where you want to land. But a part of growing and building a business, you know, they need women like us in those spaces as well. And so learning how to run a business is, is the program that I joined and then leading technology teams in the healthcare space. My work has the bulk of my work at GE was focused on handheld ultrasound and technology systems for the emerging markets. And um, the opportunity to work with diverse teams, this, you know, teams from our global research center in Schenectady, New York, to uh, midwives in Africa and ASHA workers in India, the, um, the innovation of Indonesia and the testing points of Myanmar. This is literally what diversity looked like for me. And it was everyone from the private sector to the public nonprofits. You know, I became a UN delegate during my time there and working very closely with the WHO and the UN at the time, the Millennium Development Goals. I mean, experiences that I never thought I would have at a company like GE, but we we needed to learn what diversity looked like for us so that we could serve a market that was very different than the New York Presbyterian Hospital System of New York City, which is where I started my work. Being open to learning from diverse communities, being open to solve problems in a very different way, and then having an understanding of how to monetize work in a very different way have been some of the areas of my career that have been the most challenging, the areas that I'm most proud of, and the areas that I believe I've excelled in and kind of set my career apart. And so during my time at the great multinational GE, I've worked you know, in, in all of these places that I've mentioned and had a chance to almost, um, you know, sharpen my skill set in so many areas um, that I don't believe I would have had the opportunity to do anywhere else. GE took some very big bets on me. And I want to encourage the women and anyone listening to this podcast that for every bet that GE took on me, what I learned at the end of my journey there was that I also needed to take those same bets on myself and trust all that I had learned and all that I had become so that I could take those strengths to other places. Well, I just, I want to probe on that a little bit, because as you were mentioning the various countries and regions of the world that just perhaps one project you were involved in, my mind was ping-ponging back and forth and thinking about the different cultures and the cultural competencies you need to develop. You know, when that opportunity came up, what was that decision-making process like for you in terms of obviously taking a big risk? So I will tell you, Karen, that I fell in love with the world at a very young age. And I want to preface this part of the conversation by saying to your audience, it is so important for women to take international assignments. You know, I will push for that every time. But I fell in love with the world at a young age. My sister and brother were graduating high school and and in college, you know, when I was just three years old. So they're much older than me. And uh, they left behind their encyclopedias and their globes. And it's interesting that I ended up working for a global company and an encyclopedia. But I loved the world. And I used to read about it and study it. And, you know, my, my father said, you know, I cannot send you around the world. But his commitment was to educate me. And then he said, my job is to make sure that I found my way in the world. And GE gave me that opportunity. 
the risk that I took actually the short assignment that I had before I joined GE, I did work other places. I worked for J and J, but it was a very short period of time. And I, I worked in Brazil for when I was with them. And I, you know, your question is, what was the risk? I will tell you that because I love the world, saying yes to the world was not a problem. You know, so immediately when I was asked to take an assignment in Brazil, I said, yes, I can go. And then when I got to GE, the first five years of my career were very local to New York, New Jersey, my customer base. But taking that assignment and doing that work in New York taught me things that I needed for problems I was going to solve in other places that I never thought I would need. So first and foremost, you've got to approach every role for the opportunity that it is. And you have no idea what you're doing now and the strength in the, that it's building for you for the future. And then I want to encourage you, encourage all of us just to be willing to say yes to assignments that other people will tell you, why are you doing that? I had people tell me you're, you're committing career suicide. You know, no one will know what to do with you if you, if you take these roles that, that don't seem to have a more traditional path. And I had already decided that as a Black woman in STEM, I was a non-traditional entity that people didn't really know what to do with. So I might as well go, go ahead and do the things that people didn't understand anyway. It certainly was not going to hurt me. I took jobs that fed who I was as an individual. I love technology. I love the business of technology. And I love purpose-driven work. And I took assignments that drove me in that direction and allowed me to grow my skill sets. And then I took assignments that challenged me, whether it was sitting on audit committees or understanding the, the financial scope of things or working with global communities to understand the diversity of thought. I took these assignments so that I could be a better leader in that space. And so the risk is as great as the reward. And uh, it requires you committing to something that you might say, I don't know if I can do this, but you can. And then surrounding yourself back to the mentoring and the sponsorship in the communities of people that will encourage you to do that. And then agreeing to take a risk on yourself. Know this, when a company is putting you in a job, they've already bet on you. They already, they're not saying to themselves, we don't think she can do it. They hired me and put me in that role and invested in me because they knew I could do it. The only person that was holding me back was me. And so we have to decide not to do that. Yep. I tell young women that all the time when they say, oh, you know, I have peers that say, I just got this job because I'm a woman. I say, no organization is going to do that because they want to be successful. You're there because you have the skill sets and the drive that they want. And so, you know, put that out of your mind. You're there because you can do the work. That's right. You mentioned a little something that I love. I talk about all the time is having purpose. And really being at an organization where you feel that you are making a difference and you can get behind the mission. So let me push now to your jump to Wikipedia and what kind of prompted that? I mean, we talked a little bit about this when you were at the SWE conference, but I think it'd be great to share with our audience. So Karen, this is, um, I love the story because Wikipedia was just so cool. Man, you want to talk about <laughs> Just a great opportunity. And it's not because it's not because GE wasn't. I, I had so many experiences, but GE is where I grew up. It was where I cut my teeth and all of the other pain that goes along with 
becoming an entry, you know, postgraduate student employee to becoming an executive of a multinational, right? I want to say this because this goes back to what you said about us talking about ourselves. As a Black woman executive at GE, I was, at the time when I was at GE, there were only over 300,000 employees. Less than 100 of us were Black women executives. Look, we have a lot of work to do in terms of equity at GE, but that was certainly a place to aspire to. And so I am so proud of that. Leaving GE was not something I thought I would do. I actually thought I'd probably retire there. But I had an opportunity when I came back to the States and after I led women in the Women in Tech Initiative for GE um, to take a sabbatical for some personal reasons. I had been overseas for years. I had been leading two chairman-based initiatives. And I had also been managing the loss of my father and some and my his brothers in, in what was a very tragic time for my family. And GE was gracious. I had a chance to take a sabbatical. I ended up taking a full year off. And I didn't go back to GE because during that time, I had an opportunity to start hanging out in places. Um, I was spending time uh, as doing um, work with the Skim and some other cool startups and, and just learning about some different areas. And when I got the call for Wikipedia, I challenged myself and said, why am I so afraid to do this job? And the reason was because it was like learning a different language. I knew how to talk GE. I knew how to work in a place that was very structured and ordered and a very disciplined environment. Wikipedia was, you know, a almost teenager-ish growing out of their teenager startup space. It was the web. It was the internet. It was a lot of millennials and open source and so many things that I just wasn't sure if I knew how to do. I'm like, I mean, yes, I'll get to wear sneakers every day to work, but I'm not sure that I even know how to do that. And I decided to challenge myself and make a 180. I moved to the West Coast, started hanging out in the Silicon Valley venture capital world, and built an operations division for the top one of the top five websites in the world that had, by the time I left, over 500 staff members and you know millions and millions of users that grow from the value of Wikipedia. I went to Wiki to build an operations department. And while I was there, again, I had an opportunity to live into great purpose for my life. And that was to be a part of the movement of equity and content in, in open source. And I, I couldn't have asked for a greater opportunity. And so again, I will state that, you know, we take roles for a lot of reasons that have everything to do with the work and the deliverables. And then there's always opportunity for us to live into vocation in these places if we, um, if we just keep our eyes open to that opportunity. Yeah. And maybe can you just talk a little bit, you've mentioned a few times about international assignments and relocation. And I think sometimes for women, that's a little bit more challenging. But can you kind of talk about how you approach that process? And, and once you get to a new place, what's that like? Yes, it is. Moving is tough. I've lived in a lot of places. I am single, Karen, and I don't have children. And I'd like to get a dog. I'm trying to figure that out. But I haven't been able to do that either. But I will say this. I have been able to find community in every place where I've been sent. And I'm just very grateful for that. It does require 
a very open mindset. Um, I have committed to myself. I will not go into any space counting the days of, for when I can leave. I absolutely just can't live like that. I go into a place saying, how do I find a community? Uh, because of who I am as a woman of faith, my spirituality is very important to me, most important to me. And so I always connect with a local church and my health and fitness. I always find a gym. And then there's been times when I've just found great friends and other times where it's been a place where it's been all about the work and probably not as much about my social life in multitude. But I will say this, I've always found places where I can excel. Now, some are better than others. And I'll give an example. When I moved to the Global Research Center in Schenectady, it was at a very critical time. I was leaving Africa and moving to upstate New York uh, right at the election of Trump as president. It was a very concerning time for me as a Black woman living in an environment that I did not think was safe for me. I adjusted my lifestyle. It wasn't a place where I wanted to be out at night where I'm seeing signs that say Blue Lives Matter and things like that. I didn't feel like it was the safest place for me. I didn't feel from a social justice perspective that I was going to find a community of sorts. I did. I ended up finding a small community of both Blacks and whites and, and people that I became friends with at the time. And, you know, it worked for me. But I do think that one, companies have to be mindful of where they ask people to go. As particularly now, so much can be done virtually. My roles have been mostly international. So living in the environments are important and it's a part of what I wanted to do. But I do think companies need to be mindful of what where they ask people to go. And then I think that, you know, women have to be strong in their voice to say what will be good for them and what won't be. I didn't feel that initially. I never said no. And there are times now where I would, would I probably had to rethink things that I said yes and no to. And I would probably, I might do some of those things again. But fortunately, I have good stories that have come out of all of them. Yeah, we talk a lot about that at sweet. And that it is okay to say no sometimes if it's not the best time for you or your family, or, you know, you mentioned the environment that you're going to be in. Other opportunities will come along. That's right. Karen, I said no to an assignment once at GE. I was a nervous wreck. I mean, literally didn't sleep for days. I remember when I was preparing to make the phone call to say that I didn't want the role and, you know, true engineering. If I say this and they say that, then I should say this. You know, I've got all this stuff laid out in front of me. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. It wasn't the right move for me. It wasn't going to be good for where I was. Even though I'm single, I do have a family. I have a mom. I have siblings and a huge niece and nephew, set of nieces and nephews and cousins and my community. And I needed it. I had been away for a long time. I had experienced a lot of loss. It wasn't going to be good for me. And I said, no. And I ended up still working for the company for years afterwards. So we, we have to feel strong in our voice and be okay with the whatever the consequences are, good and good, when we say no to something. Notice I didn't say bad, you know, because it'll be good. It'll be good for you and, and it'll be good for the person that does take that opportunity behind you. Yep, absolutely. And the first person we need to take care of is ourselves, yes. right? If you're not taking care of yourself, no matter the assignment, the job, the company, it won't matter because you really do have to come first. Agreed. 
So you mentioned social justice. So of course, I could not bring that into our conversation today. I think that was a bit of what was happening in 2020 really prompted you considering the position at Nesby. So can we start there? Sure enough. So 2020 was a year and I was just coming back from Africa, doing some work for with our Wikipedia community there in Ghana, which is like a second home to me. I was leaving San Francisco because I'd lived there for about a year. I was, I was moving back to DC and I made a pit stop at my home in Florida just for a quiet weekend right after the holidays. And we hosted our all hands meeting at Wikipedia in San Francisco and said, I'll take a break. I stopped in, in Florida here in 2020. And we know what happened after that, the pandemic and then public life. I'll never say things started happening with Black people. I'd say the public exposure of the ongoing treatment of Black people, some of it violent, some of it, um, you know, all of it bad, began to showcase. And Wikipedia, like many organizations, was very bold in its response and its commitment. I began to work very closely um, with our community on our Black Lives Matter page and many of the stories that were written about Black people on Wikipedia. It was very mission-driven and very purpose-driven for me. And we had an opportunity to do something for the first time ever, and that was to launched the equity fund for Wikipedia, where this fund has been supporting content on the open source platform that is related to equity and inclusion and diversity. All of those things were wonderful for me. And I was ready to continue to be a voice for Wikipedia and the value of diverse content on the platform. And I received a phone call from a mentor and a sponsor from my previous years um, saying, did you hear that Nesby's is looking for a new leader? And I said, I didn't. And I'm an active member of Nesby, you know, grew up in Nesby, but, but didn't know that. And she forwarded me the spec and the recruiter reached out to me and I started having a discussion. And as I was talking, I was very intentional that, you know, staying at Wikipedia was, was going to be my priority. But if I could support by finding a person, to interview for the role, that's where we would land. Clearly, I ended up interviewing and I'm grateful to have like a homecoming experience where I could come back and serve at Nesby. But I will tell you, Karen, that the reason I made this decision is 100% because of what happened in 2020. I felt that I could do more in the space of equity in tech and have a direct impact on Black people if I came to Nesby. And I felt like I was going to have an impact on the broader scope of things at Wikipedia. But I felt the need to be very diligent and very honed in on my audience. And so Nesby is a homecoming to me all these years later from when I was region two chair and worked on the national conference planning committees and all in the 90s to be able to come back and to be this, the first CEO for this organization is my pleasure. And my goal is to ensure that I'm a part of elevating Nesby to be an influential force in the equity movement for STEM. It already does so many other things well in being a part of ensuring that we build the pipeline and put culturally responsible engineers into the workforce. I want Nesby to be a place of influence and a voice for the Black 
tech movement. And that is why I decided to join the organization here. Well, we are glad to have you in this fight because I think, you know, when we look at the numbers for women, people of color in engineering, they are way too low. And so I think there's more work we can all do together to make sure that changes. In terms of social justice, so after the George Floyd murder, like many organizations, we issued a statement denouncing that. But we felt that it was important to talk about what we were going to do as an organization, which was to make sure we were a more inclusive, equitable organization, that we were making sure the voices of our members of color were heard, and that we were going to make some systemic changes to be more inclusive. But you know, because I think so many organizations issued a statement, but what does it really mean? So how do we all be better allies for the Black community? So first of all, I think it's wonderful, honorable, and brave for SWE to make, make these statements. And I will say that the next step in that process is for me, and particularly all of us as engineers and technical people, is to set metrics on how you're measuring the impact of the statements that you make and how you're holding yourself accountable. Each of us need to hold ourselves accountable to the statements we make, the commitments we make, and the work that we do every day. I look at the voice and the movement of equity as, you know, as the things that we do each and every day. It's a part of, it should be a part of the mission, it should be a part of the assignment, and it should be top of mind every day so that then it doesn't become an add-on. I'm one of the people that you may hear struggle with the word allyship because it can be very oathy, you know, like I'm taking an oath. I want to be an ally. And I believe that it has to be something that you grow into and you can't force fit it. A lot of allies force things. And the way you see that happen is when people try to tell the person they're becoming an ally for what they should read or how they should act or what they think might be best for them or how they're going to help them. And sometimes allyship mostly means listening and then opening up doors and creating space for, for the inequity that exists in the space where you are. And so I'm not always as on board if it means that allies are trying to design a path forward and solve for an issue as opposed to allowing the voice of those that are impacted to be able to solve for them. I also tell organizations, corporations, any community of practice, what does diversity look like on your boards, in your your leadership, in your chapters, in your advisory groups? It has to be a balance. That's not just Black people, but that's what we're talking about right now. But, um, you know, what does that look like? And, you know, never ascribe to the statement of there's not enough, they're not available. There's, it's never that. It doesn't have to be the same five people that are on in every conversation. This world is so big and there are so many powerful women, powerful people, people of influence, Black people that can serve and support and create a a thought leadership or a thought partnership. So, you know, we're here and we're ready to serve. When when this partnering becomes something that is the norm and not something that has to be forced or enforced, 
then we'll, we'll be getting there. But we have such a long way to go. If we even think about the statements from two years ago, in May, we'll be coming up on those two years. And, you know, there's not a lot of measurement in place for anyone to be able to say, this is what we've done. People may be able to say, you know, we've hired this many people, but let's look at how many have transitioned. For every person you hire, people are leaving as well. And that's because the experience that they have when they get into a, an organization or into a company is still just as challenged. Anything from, as I said earlier, you know, putting having your company, you know, people having to work in places where just getting to work is dangerous for them, where they're pulled over because they're black and there's no empathy towards their experience or they're looked at differently because of who they are. They camp on a community there, no place for them to get their hair done, where, where they can live to express themselves differently. These are places where people don't feel comfortable working. And when we don't allow the ERGs and other organizations to have a budget, to make decisions, to be a part of the interview slates, to be able to express the challenges they're experiencing when they're overlooked and otherwise, those make places very difficult spaces to be in. And we have to keep working at it. Yep, I agree. And, and you mentioned listening. And I think that is so important. I mean, we did some listening town halls at SWE. And, and I mean, some of it, you know, frankly, was hard to hear as the leader of a diversity organization to hear the experiences, you know, women were having. But we can't be defensive. We need right. to listen and take it in and try to understand the lived experience. Everyone's experience is their own. And so, to take an experience, which is often what happens with Black people, and then try to superimpose your experience over it is wrong. It's never right to say, no, 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 I get it, I get it, because I also, you know, I grew up in an area where there was so, and when you try to expose yours on top of someone else's, just hear them out and let them express it, because, you know, people have a right to sit and to feel and to own where they are. I said something once to our staff at Wikipedia after an experience over the weekend where we were away for a weekend, we were at a hotel and we were approached by a group of people, by the management saying, you know, can I see your room key or something? And we're like, why? And they're like, well, the, this group here thinks that maybe you're not guests of the hotel. Like, How would we be able to sit at the pool if we weren't guests of the hotel? There was a whole Thing that ensued as a result of that. And it's annoying, frustrating, and ridiculous. But the reason I shared it with the staff at a meeting, my direct staff at a meeting on Monday is because I said, this is what happened to me on Saturday. While y'all were at Costco and Target and just buying your toilet paper and, you know, barbecuing or whatever. And everybody comes back to work on Monday. Like, oh, we had a great weekend because we didn't have to work this weekend. We finally had one weekend where there were no phone calls. And this is what I dealt with on the weekend. People thinking that I wasn't a guest, you know, at the Four Seasons. Like you could just walk in there and go sit by their pool randomly. And I shared that because I'm like, you never know what a person's experience is at any given time. So never try to superimpose yours on top of theirs. Just let them have theirs and sit in it, listen, and then go from there and, and see what a person needs in order to be able to be different in their space in that moment. Absolutely listen and say, thank you for sharing. And thank you for trusting me to hear that experience. We don't need to offer advice or try to fix it, right? 
we need to let oh, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Janine, I just want to give you an opportunity. We've covered a lot, but if there's anything we haven't covered in closing that you would like to share. You know, I think that the only thing I would like to leave your audience with is that we talk a lot about just the how difficult and how hard we are on ourselves as women, how we, we don't see the value of ourselves and uh, how we allow others to define us. That happens for women, that happens for Black women, age, any culture of women. And the thing that we must continue to do and do better always as a community of women is not do that to one another. The thing that is the biggest pain point for me in the space of women is when we are not advocates and support of one another. We most times are all we have. And because we know the experiences of one another, it is unacceptable and probably one of the worst things that we can do towards one another when we don't extend that grace and support, when the very thing that comes against us on a daily basis is what we give to other give to one another. And so when we come into communities like SWE, when we join networks in our companies like a women's network or otherwise, how dare we not see one another in the truth of what we're bringing into that space, knowing that when we go outside of that space, whether it's that space on Zoom or that space in the room or at that coffee table or at that dinner, we already know what we're facing outside of there. Can we just give more grace, kindness, and support to one another instead of picking at the weaknesses that the rest of the world is already picking at. This way we can be better for each other. The world is huge. There's so much space. There's so much opportunity for us all. Don't be afraid to pull, have someone else pull up a chair beside you because there's so much room for us all. Janine, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. I know it's a really busy time for you with your Nesby annual convention just around the corner, but we covered a lot of ground today and I know our audience will benefit so much from your experiences, as well as some of the thoughts you shared on social justice. So thank you again for being with us. I'm Karen Hording for all of us at SWE. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to leave us a review and share this episode with your social network. Thanks for listening.